I'm Les Chapman, Senior Preaching Minister here at the Hendersonville Church of Christ, and we're glad that you can join us today. We want to, of course, continue to remember uh, all the things that are happening in our country. We want to be mindful of, of the pandemic and the fact that sickness is continuing to spread throughout both our community and our nation. We want to be mindful of those who are suffering from the economy as it has suffered because of the pandemic. And of course, in the last couple of weeks, we've been faced with the fact that we still are a nation that struggles with injustices at so many different levels. And, and of course, as Christians, if there's a message that Jesus gives to us, is that we stand up for those who are sick, who are poor, who suffer injustices, that we try to be Jesus' presence in the world. And I pray that you'll try to do that, as I know I'm trying to do it, as well. We continue our series of lessons entitled His Story. And we're winding down the Old Testament and we come today to a passage that is one of the most important passages in all the Old Testament. We've been looking at passages that are predictive in nature, predicted the coming of the son of David who would be king on his throne forever predictive of the crucifixion of Jesus' role as high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We've talked about how that during the days of the Roman Empire, God would have set up a kingdom that would never disappear. Today we come to a much more, in many ways, personal subject. It's found in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31. And I know this is a long memory verse, and I apologize for that. And, and, and yet it's an important verse, or two verses. In many ways, it is the pinnacle of the Old Testament. It's written by Jeremiah, one of the great prophets. and He says, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. That last phrase is a phrase that all of us needs to let sink in. And to sink in personally, I will forgive less wickedness. And remember his sins no more. It's personal. It's personal to me. And it should be personal to you. You know, to understand what Jeremiah was talking about, you need to back up just a little bit in time. You know, when Moses went and led the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage, they went to Mount Sinai where they entered into covenant with God. The word covenant simply means an agreement, but it's an agreement that God enters into where he's going to be faithful no matter what. Now, Israel would end up wandering for 40 years in the wilderness because of her unfaithfulness. And when she finally prepared to go into the land of Canaan, Moses spoke to her. I want you to notice what Moses predicted. He says, after you have had children and grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time, if then, if you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol, 
doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God, and arousing his anger. Now, of course, we know that that's exactly what Israel did. Notice what God goes on to say. I will call heaven, the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you this day, that you will quickly perish from the land that you're crossing the Jordan to possess. Here's God giving this incredible warning to his covenant people. Moses goes on in verse 26 and 27, You will not live there long, but will certainly be destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. We'll look here in a few moments. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Israel would split into two kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And both would go off into idolatry, Israel far worse than Judah, but both of them made idols and began to worship them. And God began, just as he said, to scatter them, to destroy them. An important passage comes after Deuteronomy 4, 26 and 27 in verse 31. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. And then here's what Moses says. He will not abandon or destroy or forget the covenant with your ancestors. Put very simply, God still has a plan. And your unfaithfulness to the Mosaic covenant will not dissuade God from fulfilling his plan, his promises. And notice, the covenant made with your ancestors. That covenant is the one that we studied several months ago when we began this series from Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, where God promised to Abraham that he would multiply his seed, but more than that, that through that seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And he says, by the way, God confirmed that to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by oath. And so here we are now, moved from Deuteronomy 1300 B.C., 1200 B.C., somewhere in that time frame. And now we're around 600 B.C. Over six, 700 years later, and Jeremiah is speaking to them. Now he's speaking to a very different time frame. You see, after the nations had divided, Israel became very wicked. In fact, they never had one single righteous king. And the end result was that in 722 B.C., 722 B.C., Israel was carried off by the Assyrian Empire. And they were uprooted from from their land, very much like what the United States did to the Native Americans in, in Florida and Tennessee and North Carolina on what's called oftentimes the Trail of Tears. Israel suffered their own Trail of Tears. And the ten tribes were taken away into Assyrian captivity and never heard from again. Now there were remnants that were left in the northern kingdom, the poor the aged, you know, the young. And, and what Assyria did was they moved Gentiles into what had been Israel. And these Gentiles and the Israelites that were left intermarried. And of course that became what we call today the Samaritans. And so the Samaritans were people who worshipped the Lord, 
but they worshiped the Lord up on Mount uh, Gerizim, up in Samaria. You may recall the story of the woman at the well in John chapter 4. That story is about a descendant of the northern tribes and their intermarrying with the Gentiles. And so God fulfilled his promise to the northern tribes to destroy them and to scatter them among the nations. And then about 120 years later, the same fate would fall to the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. Judah had had a very rocky relationship with God. Judah, of course, is where the descendants of David reigned. And some of David's descendants would be good kings and righteous kings, men like Hezekiah and Josiah, and then others would be extremely wicked, like Manasseh had been. And so God finally steps in, and beginning in around 604, 605 B.C., he sent the southern tribes into Babylonian captivity. And so from Judah, basically the majority of the people were uprooted. They were taken to Babylon. And we actually heard from one of them last week in our lesson, Daniel. He, Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego, were among those that went off into Babylon. Now the Babylonian captivity would last for 70 years. And then the Medo-Persians would take over Babylon and allow the Jews to go back home and to rebuild the temple. But it was during this captivity that Jeremiah speaks. Jeremiah was there and witnessed every bit of it, even to the destruction of Solomon's temple. Now Jeremiah himself did not go into captivity. We don't know what happened to him. He just kind of disappears from the scene. But in his prophecies, he predicted that God would show mercy on his people. Notice beginning in Jeremiah 31, verse 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant. A new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. In the midst of absolute, utter chaos comes God's promise of hope. And he says, I'm going to make a new covenant with the nation of Israel, with the nation of Judah. And then Jeremiah goes on to describe that. Now one of the things you need to understand is that in all the Old Testament, this is the only time the phrase new covenant is found. Now it's not the only time it's talked about. It's just the only time those words are used. Ezekiel would be a contemporary of Jeremiah, and he would write from Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah somehow escaped. Ezekiel did not. And so God spoke through Ezekiel and basically confirmed the same message that he gave to Jeremiah. Notice Ezekiel 37, verse 24. Speaking of this coming new covenant, he says, My servant David will be king over them, and they will have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. Now, there are a couple of points here that I hope you'll notice. Number one, my servant David will be king over them. Now, he's not meaning literally David. He means David descendant that he had promised in 2 Samuel 7, 13, 14, and then verse 16, a passage we looked at several weeks ago. And here's Ezekiel saying God is going to place over Israel the descendant of David, whose kingdom will reign forever. 
And then he goes on and notice the next phrase here. And they will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. Now, if you've read any of Ezekiel, that language causes you to think of another passage. Because you see, Ezekiel 37 is playing off something God had said in Ezekiel 36. So let's look back one chapter. Ezekiel 36, verse 27. Here's what God promised during the time of this new covenant. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. Now notice the usage of the word decrees and laws. If you go back to or go forward to 37, they will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. Same thing. Follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That He switches the words uh, Jeremiah does, decrees and laws, in both of these texts, but they mean the exact same thing. So here's a promise that God is going to intervene in this new covenant in a very special way by putting His Spirit in His people. He goes on back in chapter 37, I will make a covenant a peace with them, it will be an everlasting covenant. I'll establish them. I'll increase their numbers. I'll put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I'll be their God, and they will be my people. You're going to hear that multiple times in this lesson. New covenant, Jeremiah. Covenant of peace, Ezekiel. Our everlasting covenant. I hope you're keeping up with this phrase, everlasting. Because when God spoke to David, he says, I'm going to establish your kingdom forever. It'll be an everlasting kingdom. When David wrote Psalm 110, he says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You're an everlasting high priest. And then last week, we were in Daniel chapter 2, and during the days of the Roman Empire, God said, I'm going to set up a kingdom that will last forever. An everlasting kingdom. And if you don't pick up on those themes, you miss the whole point of what the Old Testament was pointing us to. And then in Jeremiah 31 verse 32, he begins to describe this new covenant. Now let me pause here just for a moment and say something to us. Covenants are important. There are certain covenants that we still keep. There's one that I observe every May 13th, have since 1979. It's the day that I entered into a covenant with June. I promised to love her and to be a faithful husband to her. And she promised to love me and to be a faithful wife to me. You see, that covenant, we call it anniversary, is special. It's precious to us. God also enters into covenant with his people. He's entered into covenant with Israel in the past, and he's now entered into covenant with those of us who are Christians. And here, Jeremiah describes that covenant. And so I hope you'll pay very special attention to what he says. He says, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. 
The first thing that he says is, it's not going to be like the Mosaic Covenant. Now, why? What's going to be different from the Mosaic Covenant to the covenant that God enters into with, to, with us through Jesus Christ? And notice what he says. The problem was because they broke my covenant. The writer of Hebrews picks up on both this entire text, but especially this concept of the weakness that we have. Notice Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verses 7 and 8. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the one that's made at Mount Sinai, no place would have been sought for another. And then look at the problem. Verse 8. But God found fault with the people. See, they simply couldn't keep it. And what's interesting is, notice the dots here, he immediately goes on and quotes from Jeremiah 31, the passage we're looking at. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with Israel and with the house of Judah. And so, there was something about the first covenant that made it difficult to keep, to obey. Now, I want to get across a very important point here. And listen to me carefully. The New Covenant is not the Mosaic Covenant 2.0. Having been raised in the church, uh, I, I heard a lot of sermons, a lot of sermons from the Old Testament. And I think sometimes there was a mistake that preachers and teachers made, uh, and perhaps we're still making it today, but we basically go back to the Old Testament and we look at the relationship of God with Israel and we just assume that the New Testament is very much like the Old Testament. It's just a 2.0. And that's not the case at all. In fact, if there's anything Jeremiah is saying is that the New Covenant is not going to be like the Old Covenant. And in particular, with this problem of our keeping it. So let's look at what Jeremiah had to say. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Now, if you've been a Jew at this time when Jeremiah was saying this, you knew exactly what he was saying. You see, when Moses went up on Mount Sinai, God gave him the law, and guess where he wrote it? On tablets of stone. We call it the Ten Commandments. But here's Jeremiah all of these years later, and he's saying it's not going to be that way in the New Covenant. God's going to write his law this time on their minds, and on their hearts. Now, how does he do that? And why is it important that we understand that? Going back to Ezekiel, you'll see how. Notice again the promise of God through Ezekiel. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You see, there's a huge difference between the Old Covenant and the New One, and it has to do with the Spirit of God. Was the Holy Spirit active in the Old Testament? Absolutely. Did the Holy Spirit come upon people like David or like the prophets and the priests? He did. But not everyone received the Spirit. Not so under the New Covenant. The amazing thing about the New Covenant is God's promise to us to put something in us 
that will help us in our relationship with Him. Watch what the Apostle John says. This is John 14. This is out of the New American Standard Bible. I think it does a better job translating than the NIV does on this one. But he begins in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I apologize for a roll of the Spirit here. That's actually a chapter or a paragraph heading there. But in verse 15, here is Jesus saying, If you're in relationship with me, you'll know it by the fact that you keep my commandments. Now, you may be thinking right now, whew, you know, it's hard to keep the commandments. And it is. I'm the first to admit that. And that's why Jesus said what he said next. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. The Greek word there is paraclete. And, and it comes from a compound uh, Greek word, para meaning alongside of, a kleo meaning to call. And so a paraclete is someone who's called alongside of you. And he's there to assist you. That's why the New American Standard translates it helper. And notice what he says, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither or does not see him uh, or know him, but you know him because he abides with you. And then, Jesus says, and will be in you. One of the most important gifts we receive when we obey the gospel is not just the forgiveness of sins. I know growing up in the church, I heard Acts 2.38 quoted a million times. Peter's telling the people on the day of Pentecost, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins. We oftentimes stopped right there. We stopped way too early. Because we left out the most important thing. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, for the promise. What promise? The promise of Ezekiel. The promise that Jesus talked about here in John chapter 14. The promise that God would give us a helper. This person who comes alongside us. In fact, he is inside of us. To assist us in our walk with God. And, and a failure to recognize that is a failure to acknowledge his help in our lives. He goes on and he says... This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll be their God, and they'll be my people. It's a beautiful expression. An expression that will show up in Ezekiel. We looked at it just a few moments ago. But it would find its fulfillment in Revelation 21, in the new heavens and the new earth, where John declares in this last vision that he has, that he heard a loud voice from the throne of God, Look! God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he'll dwell with them. They'll be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. You know, I can't wait to see Jesus. And I mean that with all of my heart. But I also cannot imagine what it's like to be in the presence of God the Father. For him to declare me as his child. And to say... I'm your God, and all of you are my people. What, what Jeremiah is talking about here is an intimate relationship with God. John would go on in chapter 22 of Revelation and says we'll actually be able to see his face. Face to face with God. 
What a beautiful image. And that's what this promise is all about. He goes on and he says, let me tell you another characteristic about this covenant. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord. Because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. So many people misunderstand verse 34. You have to understand the difference between the Mosaic covenant and Jesus' covenant to understand what Jeremiah is saying. You see, in order to become a, a Jew or an Israelite, you simply had to have a Jewish or Israelite mother. You see, the right to the Mosaic Covenant was a birthright. Now, that birthright didn't work. That was the whole reason God had to come up with another one. And of course, if you were a Jew and born into the covenant family, you had to be taught to know the Lord. That's the whole point. I mean, here you are, you're born, you're a member of the covenant family. If you're a boy, you're circumcised on the eighth day, but you still have to be taught who God is and what he expects of you. But Jeremiah said the time is coming, and I'll make a new covenant. And birth will not be a physical birth. In fact, John the Baptist would play off of this in Matthew chapter 3 when the religious leaders are coming. He says, and do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. We're saved because we're born into the family of Abraham. And here's John the Baptist saying that's not good enough. Never has been, and it definitely won't be under the new covenant. You see, under the new covenant, we become members of the family of God through a new birth. A birth where we put our faith in Jesus Christ. We, we decide to become one of his disciples and to use the words of Matthew later on. You know, we saw what he said in Matthew 3 with John the Baptist. Here's what Jesus says to the apostles. Therefore, go and make disciples. How? By baptizing them. Letting them be born again. Having their sins washed away. But more importantly, the gift of the Holy Spirit being given to them. You see, when someone becomes a Christian today, they do it because they choose to do it. I know a lot of churches have a faith tradition where they still think that children are born into the church, that their parents make the decision for them. They're, they're sprinkled or poured or baptized as infants, as if their parents could make that decision. But if there is one passage that teaches us that infant baptism is not what makes you a member of the covenant family of God, it's Jeremiah 31. Otherwise, you'd have to teach them to know the Lord. You see, when I was 11 years old and obeyed the gospel, I did it because that's the decision I made. I knew the Lord and wanted to know Him as my Savior. And if you've been baptized, you made that exact same uh, 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 decision. No one had to tell you, know the Lord, because you'd already been taught about Jesus and then made the decision yourself to either accept him or to reject him. He goes on then and deals with that passage that I meant, mentioned just a few moments ago. He says, this is also a part of that covenant. I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. You have to understand the book of Hebrews if you're going to picture what Jeremiah was talking about here. You see, in the Old Testament, if you sinned, you went to the temple or the tabernacle prior to the temple being built, and you offered sacrifices for your sins. 
And of course, if I sinned yesterday, I went yesterday and offered a sacrifice. If I sinned today, I'd have to return and do the same thing. The writer of Hebrews looks at that and says, can I show you what's wrong with that? He says the law of Moses is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. And then notice what he says. For this reason it can never, by the same sacrifices repeatedly, repeated endlessly, year after year. I mean, how many times did you have to sacrifice over and over and over again? He says it was impossible to make perfect those who draw near to worship. He says if it had, would they have not stopped being offered? In other words, if the sacrifice of a goat or a lamb or a bull could deal with sin, why did I have to keep going back and doing it? For the worshiper would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. And then he says this, But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take them away. You see, what, did God offer forgiveness to the Israelites when they went to the temple? Of course he did. But he offered forgiveness in anticipation of the coming of his Messiah, the coming of his Son, who had paid the ultimate price for all sins, from Adam and Eve all the way to the last person who will sin right before Jesus comes back. And that's the point that he makes here. Notice what he says. But when this priest, talking about Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Remember Psalm 110 verse 1? Here's the quote of it once again. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, you need to hear this, brothers and sisters. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Am I holy yet? In one sense, yes. In one sense, I'm absolutely perfect. Why? Because Jesus' blood covers me. And yet at the same time, God's Holy Spirit lives within me, bringing about the process of making me holy. The fancy word in, 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 in theology is sanctification. And it's a word that simply means that the Holy Spirit works in my life, in your life, to transform us each day more into the likeness of Jesus, who is the likeness of God. You know, when you turn to the New Testament, in addition to the book of Hebrews, you have two other passages that look back to Jeremiah 31. One is in the process of Jesus instituting something that we do every Sunday. I don't know if you've partaken of the supper yet today. If you haven't, I'm sure you will. But notice what Jesus said in Luke as he is instituted, uh, instituting this supper we call communion. In the same way after the supper, the Passover supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is, and then look at the words he chooses, the new covenant. The new covenant that Jeremiah predicted. And it is found in my blood. You see, when Moses made the covenant at Mount Sinai, he killed animals and then sprinkled the blood upon the people so that they could enter into a covenant with God. 
Jesus has done the same to us. Not literally. But he has taken his blood, presented it to his Father, sprinkled it spiritually upon us. He says it was poured out for me, and it was poured out for you. And so every Lord's Day is a day of renewal of the covenant. It's our spiritual anniversary of where we remember entering into a relationship with God because Jesus was willing to shed his blood for each one of us. Paul would grab the same concept in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 3. And he would say, You show that you are a letter from Christ. The result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. What's Paul saying here? Paul's saying that each of us as Christians are witnesses to God, are witnesses from God to the world. We're God's letters sent from Jesus, not on hearts of stone, but on hearts of flesh. And then notice what he says, such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we're competent in ourselves. It's not what we've done. It's what Christ has done for us. For our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. You see, whether you're young or old, whether you're male or female, regardless of who you are, I don't care what color you are, what nationality you are, if you're a child of God, you're a minister of the new covenant, you're a letter written by Jesus through the Holy Spirit to the world that says there is a God and he has a son named Jesus and you need to get to know him. I hope that this week that you will be that letter to the Hendersonville community, to your neighbors, to the people you work with. Let them see written on your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit of God a message of hope. And may God bless you this week.